So on October 1st, just a few months ago, October 1st of just this past year, a gunman walks onto a campus of a community college in Oregon, and he walks into a room, and he asks people to stand, and he starts asking, are you a Christian? And there were a few in the crowd there that actually said yes. And he looked into their eyes and he says, good. In a few seconds, you're about to meet your God. And then he proceeded to shoot them in the head. Last February, 21 men are walked onto a beach in Libya. They're marched out on that beach by ISIS militants. And on that beach, they were beheaded simply for being Christians. And those 21 men had every opportunity before them to denounce their faith in Jesus to save their lives. They had every opportunity to recant that they are followers of Jesus. And do you know what they did with their very last breath? They literally spent their last breath singing praises to God. As the blade was applied to their neck, they were singing to Jesus. In 255 AD, a man by the name of Maximus of Ephesus, a citizen of the city of Ephesus, which is in what we would consider today modern-day Turkey, very much back then a part of the great Roman Empire. And, and this guy, Maximus, he's brought before the governor of Asia, who rules over the Asian part of the Roman Empire. The governor's name was Optimus, which just as an aside, people had way cooler names back then than we do now. Like we have John and Jeff and Rick, like what? Like no, Optimus. Maximus, I'm sure there was a Voltron running around somewhere. So they bring Maximus before Optimus to be interrogated, and, and this is how the conversation went. Are you, Maximus, are you a slave or are you a free man? And Maximus answers, I was born a free man. Nevertheless, I am a servant of Christ. Then Optimus asked, do you not know the decree sent by the invincible princess? Uh, meaning, do you not know what has been decreed by the upper echelon of the Roman Empire that rules over the planet? All Christians are to renounce their superstition and acknowledge the only true prince, which is Caesar, because they consider Caesar virtually to be a god, to acknowledge the only true prince to whose all power all things are subjected and to worship his gods. And this is how Maximus responded. He said, yes, I have understood the unreasonable command of the emperor. Optimus retorts, then offer sacrifices to his gods. If you've understood what's been decreed by this empire, now do what the empire asked for, sacrifice to the gods of Caesar and Maximus retorts, I offer to none except to God only, and I rejoice that I always sacrifice to him alone. Again, Optimus says, sacrifice now to the gods, lest I punish you in different ways. And what Optimus did at that, at that point is that he ordered for Maximus, Optimus ordered for Maximus to be taken aside by soldiers and beaten with sticks. 
And as the beating is taking place, Optimus says to him, Sacrifice, Maximus, that you may escape these torments. And this is what Maximus says in reply. What I willingly endure for the sake of my Lord Jesus Christ is no torment. What I willingly endure for the sake of my Lord Jesus Christ is no torment. So then the governor asked for Maximus to be stretched out upon the rack, which was a torture device created, designed to rip our limbs off, in essence, to dislocate joints. And as Maximus is stretched out upon the rack, this is what he said, sufferings born for the name are not torments, but soothing ointments. Sufferings born for the name of Jesus are not torments, but rather they are soothing ointments. Throughout the centuries, countless Christians have come face to face with what is the ultimate of defining moments. And that is a moment of having to choose between life and death and a moment between choosing to be steadfast and loyal to God no matter the cost or choosing to renounce and recant in order to to be spared in that moment. History is filled with Christians, martyrs, heroes of the faith, that they've come face to faith with the most ultimate and worst of defining moments. And in that moment, they choose faith in Jesus over the alternative. And these stories, they inspire us. They Ultimately, they inspire us, but they also convict us, don't they? Because it begs a question, what would I do? What would I do if I came face to face with a moment when I was asked life or death, Jesus or otherwise? What would I do? So we're in a sermon series entitled Defining Moments. And and what we've been saying is that we all experience all kinds of defining moments throughout our life. All these major life-altering moments that make us who we are. They change us. They, They change the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act, what we do, where we go, when we go, how we go, who we go with. They change everything. The course of our life, these defining moments change all that. And usually we think of these like major next level events in our life as these standalone moments, these islands of to themselves, these in, inter, in, I'm sorry, not inter, but independent moments that stand alone by themselves in our life. And, and what I want us to think, I want us to think differently about these major defining moments in our life. That maybe, just maybe, they're not these isolated incidents, but they're actually pieces to a puzzle in a sense. Or that they're actually inextricably connected to one another. They're not random. They're like scenes in a play. Scenes in a story that they're all pushing the narrative a certain way. They're all pulling on a thread. The author is pulling on a thread to carry the plot out the way that he wants to carry it out. To bring about the results, ultimately, that the writer wants to to bring about. So what if instead of thinking of these moments as these kind of one-alone, standalone things, we think of them that way, inextricably linked to one another? What if instead of seeing them as random, we see them for what they are, which is the hands of a very loving God involved in your life, active in your life, to make changes in you and in your life to change you for the better and to invite you to be a part of this story, this glorious eternal story that God is writing in this world. And that's the truth that we've been trying to communicate in the last couple of weeks that we're doing through this series. And it's simply this. God brings defining moments into our lives 
as a means of inviting us into his divine movement in this world. God today, and the main thing that I want to kind of get across today is that God uses these events, these defining moments in our life to transform us into people who are all in. Into people who are all in in regards to our faith and in regards to this mission, this divine movement, this gospel furtherance in the world, in our lives, in our own hearts, and in the hearts of those around us. So if you have your Bible with you, and I always hope that you do, please turn to Daniel. The book of Daniel, it's in the Old Testament. It's right after Ezekiel. It's right before Hosea. And we're going to be spending some time this morning in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible on you, we'll have uh, verses on the screen. And as you're turning there, uh, I'll just kind of give a little bit of background and commentary there. Context is what's going on in Daniel 3. It's a story. It's a pretty famous story. If you've been in church or grown up in church, it's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's the story of these three Jewish men coming face-to-face with what is the ultimate defining moment, having to choose between life or death, having to choose either loyalty, wholehearted devotion to God, or abandonment to God for another God. And so in the story, we're going to meet this guy, King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to call him King Neb for short. I'm sure that's what his closest friends and family refer to him as. So King Neb, he's the king of the Babylonian Empire, uh, which at, the, at this time in world history is the empire, the power, the, the world power on the planet. And King Neb, he is a cruel, ruthless man. He is a tyrant. He's an egotistical, maniacal tyrant. He kills at will, whether fair or not. He is just a what my four-year-old would refer to as a mean guy. So he is a total mean guy, and he's the most powerful person on the planet, and he gives an ultimatum to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is do precisely what I say, when I say, if you don't, you will die. Specifically, he asked them, worship, he makes a golden image, he said, worship my God, worship my God. If you do not worship my God, I am going to kill you horribly. I'm going to throw you into fire. I'm going to burn you alive. So that's the dilemma that these three guys find themselves in, in Daniel chapter 3. But before we actually get into the story of Daniel 3, I want to back up a little bit. And it's not very far, just to Daniel chapter 1. And, and what I'd like to do is to just survey a little bit of the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and what I want us to see very, very clearly this morning is that there were a series of defining moments in their lives that ultimately led to this one. That God had been bringing all sorts of defining moments into their lives, in essence, to prepare them for what it is that they're about to go through in Daniel chapter 3. And this is specifically what God does in us and for us. He's at work in us. He brings events and experiences and challenges into our life in order to get us ready for what's next. So he does all of these things. He orchestrates all these things. He, He brings about certain things in our lives to strengthen us, mature us, equip us for whatever it is that is next. So think of it this way. That major, terrible, 
awful hardship that you went through 10 years ago, God has used that to get you ready for what it is that you're going through right now. And for some of you, what you're going through right now, as difficult as it is, it is God is going to use it for what is coming down the pike, for what is coming down next. So it's all interconnected. It's all part of one story that God is writing in, in your life. God is at work transforming us through these events into people who are all in, who are all in in regards to our faith, all in in regards to the gospel, to the mission, regardless of the cost, regardless of what it is that it may cost us. And the most important defining moment, I've been saying this for a couple of weeks, the most important defining moment in the, that a person could ever experience is that moment of salvation, that moment when they first truly understand the gospel and they, they embrace Christ, so they place their faith in Jesus, they trust him, they see him really for who he is for the first time. Wow, Jesus loves me. He died for me on the cross. He loves me that much. I repent of my sin. I confess it all. And now I give my life to, to follow him, to trust in his ways, to acknowledge him in all my ways. To that moment of salvation, you know ultimately what it is. It's the most important defining moment, but it's a call for us to be all in. So at the very moment that, that, that God opens our eyes and our heart to grace, that very same moment, God is calling us to be all in, to be, as Scripture would call, living sacrifices. As Scripture would say, to seek one thing and one thing only, and that is God, his righteousness, and his kingdom. So the, the Christian call is a call to be all in in regards to our faith in regards to following Jesus. Now, we all struggle with this, correct? It's a struggle. We resist it. Sometimes knowingly, sometimes not even knowingly, we, we fight against this call to be all in. So, folks, this is why God brings these defining moments into our life. He brings these things, these challenges into our life in order to break down our resistance to change us, to transform us into people who are all in, bought all in to the gospel wholeheartedly, no matter the cost, no matter what it may cost us. So if you turn back to Daniel 1, we'll just start there. So here you have Daniel chapter 1. It starts with a horrible, terrible, calamity-defining moment. Babylon invades Israel, and they sack Jerusalem. And in verse 2, it tells us that, that these, the Babylonian army plundered the house of God. So they, they took some precious, valuable riches out of the temple of God. And then in verse 3 and 4, you got King Neb giving orders for individual Jews to be exported out of their land and taken to Babylon to serve ki the king, to serve uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And this is how four young, at the time, four young Jewish lads end up in Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's how they end up in, in the land of Babylon. And just for, the, for a second, put yourself in their shoes if you can. If it's at all possible for, to have such an imagination. You're at home. You're in your land. You're, you're doing your thing. You're around friends and family. And here comes this army and invades your, your land and you see friends and family slaughtered, and your religion is defiled. And then on top of that, you are extracted from your homeland, and you're removed and taken to a hostile nation. 
asked to serve the king who did all of that. How terrible would that be? Like, how awful? Like, like, like that's like as bad as a defining moment as anyone could experience, right? And, you know, we, we have an we expression that we throw around quite a bit. You know, that which doesn't kill us makes us what? Makes us stronger. Well, what we're going to see in the life of these guys is that God, in fact, takes this defining moment, and along with some others, doesn't kill them, but he makes them stronger. And so this is what God does through these moments and these challenges in our life. He brings them in to strengthen us, to strengthen our resolve, our faith, to grow our faith. And that's what we're going to see. So immediately in, in, in chapter 1 there, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel along with them, they arrive in Babylon. Immediately they face another defining moment. These guys are the real deal. These guys are true believers. They are worshipers of the one and only true living God. They love the Lord their God. They are the real deal. They follow after his ways. And when they arrive in this land, they don't want to defile themselves. They don't want to make themselves impure before God. And, and they were afraid, or, or and legitimately so, that eating of the food that this king, this Babylonian king was providing would defile them. In the Old Testament, there, were very, there was a very strict diet that God's people were to adhere to. God had very specifically said, eat this, don't eat that. If you eat this, it's good. If you eat that, you are made impure. So they did not want to defile themselves. So Daniel took it upon himself to go up against the, uh, or go up to the person who was placed as their overseer, almost like a warden in a sense, overseer, and to ask for an alternative menu. And he asked in the story, he said, can we only get vegetables and water? And the overseer doesn't want to give them their menu choice. And the reason is that the overseer is afraid that after a while they'll start looking malnourished. And if they start looking malnourished, King Neb will see that they're malnourished. And if King Neb sees that they're malnourished, he will blame him. And King Neb is an awful mean guy. He is a terrible dude. Like, he's literally afraid, this overseer, that the king will have his head taken off. So he's very hesitant. And Daniel, in, verse, in, in chapter 1, verse 12, just says, listen, just test this for 10 days. Verse 12, he says, look, let's do a little quick run. Ten days, not going to hurt anyone. No one's going to look malnourished. Just give us a test for ten days. We'll just eat vegetable and water for ten days. And then in verse 15, what is awesome and amazing and wonderful is it actually says that they looked better and fatter than the other ones. So as an aside, diet tip. You want to lose weight? Don't go to vegetables. <laughs> Vegetables clearly railroad your diet, <laughs> and I've always known it. That's why I don't eat cauliflower, you know. And what's interesting here, I mean, obviously this is not making anything, this has nothing to do with diet. God is just working a, a miracle here. Uh, he is honoring their faith. He is showing them favor for their resolve to be followers of God. And, and they actually get promoted as a result. They, they look better than the others around them, so they actually get promoted in the government. They actually get to work specifically for, for the king in this situation. So anyway, so we move on to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, King Neb has a bad dream, 
And he knows that it's more than just any dream. He knows that it's a vision. It, there's just something else happening with this thing that he saw one night. So he calls the wise men. He literally calls the magi to him. Uh, there in the first few verses, he calls the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, Chaldeans, etc. And he calls these wise individuals to interpret this dream, this vision that he had. And he tells them in chapter 2, verse 5, that if they cannot interpret the dream, he's going to have their limbs torn off. Folks, I used to work for Tyco, which is uh, like one of the... One of the companies, I mean, it's, a, it's a huge company on the planet, and they, I used to work for U.S. Surgical, a subsidiary of Tyco. It was the worst job I've ever had. The job pressure every day was unbelievable. I was getting called every day, did you make your, your sales quota? Every week, where, where are you tracking on your sales quota this week? It was like, it was terrible. I knew after one month, I had to go. This is next level job stress. Could you imagine? You're getting called to your boss's office. Tell me what my dream means, Jack. Uh, if you don't, I'm going to rip your arms off. What? Just fire me, right? Like, just dock my pay, right? Don't promote me the next time. You know, like, transfer me somewhere else. But really, dude, be reasonable. But again, King Neb is a mean guy. <laughs> uh, when you have little ones at home, I'll tell you. Anyway, so... They respond in verse 10 and 11, that's not reasonable, that's too hard, no one on earth can do what you're asking for anyone to do, only the gods can do what it is that you're asking us to do. We can interpret a dream, and King Neb gets ticked off, and he orders for all of them to be destroyed, for all of them to be torn apart, including Daniel, Meshach, uh, Daniel, Meshach, Abednego, Shadrach, including them. Because they work closely for him, but at this point, they don't know what's going on. They're not even in the room, but they're going to be killed because they're part of this group of wise men that give con consultation to, to the king. So Daniel hears what Nebuchadnezzar has ordered, and so he steps up. In a sense, he steps out on faith. He steps out to speak to the king, defining moment. He had a choice to make at that at that point, right? The finding moment. It's an act of faith. In verse 16, he offers to interpret King Neb's dream, even though he doesn't even know what the dream is yet, let alone know what the interpretation of the dream is. And in verse 16, um, he, he offers, again, like I said, to interpret the dream. And in verse 17 and 18, Daniel goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and asks for a prayer meeting. To, to pray together before God, to ask for compassion, to be able to understand this mystery that, that God has revealed, uh, or they, this vision that God has revealed. So he calls for a prayer meeting. Again, I will jump aside just for a second. Folks, you cannot overstate the importance of getting together with believers to pray. There is much that happens only if believers get together to pray with one another and for one another. A.K.A. commercial for this evening, 6 o'clock. We do this once a month. It's usually the third month of the, of the third month, third Sunday of the month. 6 o'clock, we meet in here, and we just share prayer requests. You don't have to pray out loud if you're not comfortable. Other folks can do that. We can sit here quietly for an hour, but it's just a matter of getting together and praying. So 6 o'clock tonight. 
I digress back. So this, they, they pray to God for this compassion and for this wisdom. This leads to another defining moment in the story. In verse 19, God reveals the meaning of the dream to Daniel. Wonderful. So God shows favor to Daniel for stepping out on faith and, and for the prayer. And in verse 26, chapter 2, verse 26, Daniel, uh, the king asked Daniel, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and in its interpretation? Now, here's key. Here's the key in this text. Look at how Daniel answers. Verse 27 and 28. As for the mystery about which the king has inspired, uh, inquired, neither wise men Conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in later, latter days. Face to face with the tyrant on the planet. He's given this opportunity, and what does Daniel do? He shares the truth. He witnesses about God. He reveals to Nebuchadnezzar who the real, true, living God is. This defining moment isn't simply about them being spared. And I want us to understand that, that it, yeah, they'll all be killed if the dream isn't interpreted, but this goes well beyond these four individuals being spared in this moment. It's about giving this king an opportunity to know who the real God is. And that's why in this series, I keep saying it, God brings defining moments into our lives as a means of inviting us into his divine movement. That God is doing all of this in us, inviting us to be part of the story that he's writing, that we may invite other people to be part of the story. So, in, in, or to use the language from last week, it's to be the light of the world. That the reason God is doing all of this in our life is that we may shine the light of God's grace in this world. So, this brings us back to Daniel chapter 3. It's 19 years later. Now, a lot of times we miss that when we're reading scripture. It feels like it's like the next moment. Now, there's 19 years between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Uh, King Neb, he makes the statue of gold. That's 90 feet tall. Just imagine that. It's nine stories tall. And more than likely, it's made in the image of one of Babylon's principal gods named Marduk. Sounds like the dog, but. He assembles all of the high-ranking, high-level officials of the kingdom. All the, the dignitaries of the entire Babylonian empire are called to this dedication ceremony. Like the, the, the day that they're going to unveil this, this monstrosity of a golden statue for the, for the world. And in verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5, Nebuchadnezzar makes sure that all of these dignitaries and high-level officials that they know that when the praise team starts laying it down, right, when the bagpipers and the harpists and the lyre players, right, and all these people playing horns, when, when, the, when they all kind of come in and they hit the groove, when that happens, when they take it to the bridge, they're all to get on their, on their face. They're all to hit the ground. They're supposed to get prostrate before this image. 
that what Nebuchadnezzar is doing, he is calling the nations to worship his God. And in verse 6, he warns everyone, if you do not do as I command, if you do not worship my God as I've told you to, you will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire, is how it's stated. Folks, not just a furnace of fire, but of blazing fire, of which I say, well, what other kind is there? But in this case, apparently there's a difference. This is extra hot fire, right? This is, real, this is a serious furnace, apparently. And as soon as the bagpiper starts laying down his tasty bagpipe licks on his bagpipe, as soon as that happens, everyone, virtually the nations in a sense, bow before this image. All but three. Three stand out among the crowd. And some people notice that there's three that are not bowing to Nebuchadnezzar's image. And they tattletale. They run up to the king. King, king, king. You said that when the, the music starts up, everyone's supposed to get down on their face and worship your image. Well, there's three that didn't. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, they defied your decree, oh, em, emperor, grandiose person that you are. And it says that the king is incensed. I, he is just filled with wrath. We know he's a hothead. We know he's a mean guy. We know he's a mean guy. He's, he's, in the, he, he's, he's always unhinged. But then there's moments where it's like extra so. This is one of them. He orders for these three to be brought before him. So just imagine this. Most, most powerful person on the planet can have you killed at any time for no reason whatsoever. For or not. He brings you, you to him. And in this case, what is out of character is that he gives him a second chance. He's actually slightly magnanimous in, in, this, in this scenario, which he never is. He gives him a second chance. In verse 15, he says, listen, here's what we're going to do, guys. I'm going to give you another chance. We're going to start the worship service all over again. Just for you three. Just for you three. And then when you hear the music this time, be sure that you lay yourself down, you fall down, and you worship this image that I created. And to that, he adds at the end of verse 15, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? We'll come back to that in a second. So in this moment, so put yourself in their shoes. You're Shadrach, you're Meshach, you're Abednego. You're before the most... Powerful person on the planet, cruel tyrant. You're a believer, or so you've said that you are, and he's asking for you to worship a God other than your God. And if you don't, you will perish in one of the most horrible ways imaginable. What would you do? How would you react? And what will these three guys do? You know, will they be faithful to God even if it costs them their life? Or will they be devoted to God? Will they be devoted to God or will they worship a different God altogether? And look at how they respond to this king in verse 16 through 18. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. 
If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That is a defining moment. God can save us out of this. And even if he doesn't, we're still not going to do what you ask. These three are all in. Fully in. And it's so important for us to understand from this story that these three guys did not wake up one morning out of nowhere willing, able to die for their faith. This is over the course of years, over time, through all sorts of defining moments, God bringing them into their life to grow their faith to the point, to prepare them to the point that they could stand in the faith of of tyranny like this. They did not wake up like this one day. James chapter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The word there is steadfastness. In other words, faith. That our faith is tested to give us more faith. God may not be calling any of us, and, and Lord willing, may hopefully not calling any of us to physically die for our faith. But I tell you, he is calling every single one of us in here to grow in our faith. Every single last person this morning is being called to grow in their faith. And it's not just about getting ready for that next challenge. It's not only in preparation for that, that bigger next thing that's coming. It's about becoming a person, being transformed into a person who is all in, in all things and in all ways, all the time, regardless of what it may cost us. It's about becoming a mature, faith-filled follower of Jesus, choosing the life that God has chosen for us. That God is bringing these defining moments to turn us into that person who are faithful to him in all our ways with our time, with our money, our jobs, our families, with every aspect of our life to be fully all in when it comes to all of that. You know, I was been thinking about this text for a while and even reflecting on these countless believers who have faced such a trial, you know, in our country, in the world recently, throughout the centuries. Uh, There's biblical stories. Paul would be an example. Stephen would be an example of these individuals that, that came face to face with this ultimate defining moment, right? Choosing life or death, devotion to Jesus or, or, or not. And so as I'm thinking about this, something occurred to me. And that is that dying for our faith in Jesus isn't the most difficult, nor is it the most important thing any of us will ever do. The most important thing, the most difficult thing for any of us to do 
It's not die for Jesus. It's live for Jesus. And I I don't want to be insensitive or understate the sacrifice of countless Christian martyrs through through the ages. I don't want to um, diminish their heroism. But heaven forbid, God forbid, a gunman walks into our building this morning and he asks the Christians to stand up and to renounce and live or stick to it and and die i suspect that the majority if not all the believers in the room would accept that moment and i'm not saying it wouldn't be horrible and i'm not saying it wouldn't be that that it would be easy there would be much grieving there would be tears we would be holding on clutching each other but we would know that the very next moment we would be in the presence of Jesus Christ and our tears would be wiped away and we would be immersed in the glories of his grace. So the question so much isn't, are you willing to die for your faith in Christ? The question that I want us to really wrestle with is, are you willing to live for your faith in Christ? Are you willing to live out your faith Folks, that's what it means to be all in. Living's the hard part. Living it out is the hard part. You know, a few years ago, the Notre, Notre Dame, when Notre Dame joined the ACC, sports fans are with me. The rest, I just lost half the crowd. Anyway, when Notre Dame joined the ACC, the president of Notre Dame came out in a press conference and he said this, I just want to say emphatically and clearly the president of Notre Dame, I just want to say emphatically and clearly, football aside, we're all in the ACC. We're deeply committed to the ACC. Do you understand how utterly absurd that statement is? When you think of Notre Dame, what do you think of? Football. They bring nothing else to the equation other than beating Duke yesterday praise God, you know? So, but other than that, Notre Dame brings nothing to the equation. Their football is their thing. And how can someone say, we're all in, we're deeply committed to the ACC football aside? In other words, like that's their greatest money maker. That's their, what they're known for. That's their revenue. And they don't want to share that with anyone. So that aside, we are all in. And I think it's important that we be all careful that we don't do the exact same thing in our lives. Lord, my money aside, I'm all in with you. Lord, my, my spare time aside, man, I tell you, I'm deeply committed. My comforts and my security and my luxuries aside, I'm, I'm all in with you, Jesus. And folks, clearly that is not being all in. Clearly, that's not what it means to be all in. And, and I think it's important for us to evaluate our lives. What is our football? What is our football that we're seeing? This aside, I'm all in. In other words, what is it that you're holding on to? And really, what is it that is holding on to you that is keeping you from being all in? 
all in in regards to your faith in Christ and all in in regards to the life that he called you to and all in in regards to the mission, this divine movement in this world that he's called us to, to shine the light and to be witnesses, to, to work for the eternal good of other people. What is your football? What is it that you're holding on to? What is it you need to let go of? What is it that's holding you back? Why is it that we struggle so much to be all in? And I do want to answer this question. Why should we be? So, Rick, you, you know, you're telling me that Scripture and God is asking that all of me and all of my time and my family and my finances, my home, my job, that everything belongs to God and I'm supposed to be all in in regards to that and not hold anything back? Yes. Why? Like, why would anyone want to do that? Why should any of us want to be fully all in with Jesus to that degree? And I have a simple answer, and that's because he's all in with us. He is all in with us. In Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're clearly all in. They choose faithfulness to God. They choose death, if that's what it comes down to. They don't want to defile themselves. Before, they didn't want to defile themselves with food. Now they're not going to defile themselves by worshiping this false god. And so they say no to Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not going to worship your God. And so he's filled with wrath. He orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than normal. The three are tied up. They're bound up and they are thrown alive into this furnace. And then look at what happens in verse 24, 25, 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound in the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king, he said. Look, I see four men, four men, loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, your servants, you are servants, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. To everyone's surprise, there's not three that are in this furnace, it's how many? There are Four. There are four persons in, in, the fur, in the furnace, and we know, the people know, it's clear to everyone that this is not an ordinary person. This fourth individual must be divine. And may there be no doubt this morning from this text that this fourth individual is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the Son of God. This is God the Son making an appearance on earth to save his people. He comes down from heaven to save Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego from disaster. And folks, I want you to understand this. That God does not only bring defining moments into our life. He walks with us through them. These challenges, these hardships, these trials. He brings them to us for our good to refine our faith. He walks with us through every last bit of it. We can be all in with him 
because he is all in with us. He brings these defining moments into our lives to prepare us for the next challenge. And you know how it prepares us? Because every one of these defining moments is an opportunity for God to show off, for God to prove himself to be faithful. And so as I learn how faithful he was in this situation, when the next one comes, I know he's going to be faithful because he was the last time. And when I get through that, he was faithful then and on and on and on. You know, and in this story, this isn't the only time that the Son of God comes down to rescue his people from disaster. If you fast forward 600 years from Daniel 3, there is a young lady betrothed to a man named Joseph. She's a virgin, and she conceives. And the Son of God enters the world through her, Jesus. And he was born a man. He took human form. He walked among us, lived among us. And the reason he did that was to rescue us from a fiery furnace, to save us, deliver us from judgment, from, from hell. The reality is that we are all sinners. We're all marred by lies and by gossip, by all sorts of addictions, by uh, sexual immorality, you know, lust and anger. We're, I mean, it, it just comes out of our pores. We fall short of God's perfect standard. And we've all worshipped the golden idol. We've all worshipped money. How many of us this past week found ourselves daydreaming what it would be like to have $1.6 billion? Thank you, Lottery, for making it a lot more difficult for me to be satisfied with what God has given me. That's sin. It, we are eat up with these sinful desires, these worldly pursuits. Fall short of God's standard. We're on a collision course with judgment, with a furnace. But God. Best two words ever put together. But God, he's rich in mercy and compassion and loving kindness. He doesn't desire that for anyone. He desires that no one would perish. And that's why Jesus comes down to earth 2,000 years ago. That's why he came down into that furnace with the three guys. That's why he came down to go to a cross to save us and rescue us from our sin. So on that cross, your sin, your guilt, your burden, your shame is nailed onto Jesus. He paid the price. He broke us free from the consequences, the eternal consequences of sin. He shed his blood. He was the sacrifice. He died. He was raised again on the third day. And now whosoever believes in him, we are forgiven. Folks, that's grace. That's love. That's the gospel of Jesus. That's the good news that we, we profess that anyone who believes is now spared from any divine judgment or punishment whatsoever. That's good stuff. That's wonderful news. We can be all in with Jesus because he's clearly all in with us. He's all in. He died. He can't go in more than dying for someone. That's, that's like the ultimate going in. Right? He's all in. He's sacrificed. Sacrifice. He died for us. And it's so much better than you, the way it's normally presented. Jesus died to save you from hell. True. Folks, that's not like what makes the news so good. 
What makes it so good is not only that he saved us from hell, but he saved us to himself. That we can actually have an ongoing, personal, intimate, close, loving relationship with him. That he can walk with us and we with him. Now and forever. That's love. And I ask you, what do you do with that? How, how do you respond to such love? And there's only one way to respond to it. Be all in. Be all in. Be all in in regards to your faith and the, and the mission that God has called us to. Be a people who love God, who adore Him, who have affection for Him, who serve Him and obey Him, who worship Him, who sing loudly His praises every day. Be people who, let's be all in, let's love our neighbor, as difficult as that is sometimes. Put the interests of others ahead of our own. Be a blessing to those around us. Let's be helpful to other people, thoughtful and, and compassionate. Let's be all in. Be good stewards with your finances. Be giving and be charitable. Not be selfish or greedy. Be generous. Be charitable. Be giving. Be a good steward with your resources. Be generous. Uh, be gracious and be forgiving. No grudges, no spite. Just be generous with, your, with grace and forgiveness. Be involved. Be actively involved in your church. If this is your church, get all in. If it's not, go to that church and be all in. But be all in. Involved. Help to be a part of the body moving the gospel for, further that we may together be the light of the world. Let's labor together. Let's help the poor. There's poor people all around us. There's widows all around us. There's orphans around us. There's people that need help all around us. So let's be all in. Let's labor day and night for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God and the eternal good of others. Like what other response is there to the sacrifice of Jesus in that? What else is there? So I think we need to evaluate our lives. And I ask just a few questions here. Are you all in? Are you all in? Is there anything that you're holding back? Is there something that's holding you back? Is there anything that's keeping you? What is it that's keeping you? What is that football that's keeping you from fully engaging all in in your faith and in God's mission? And I know that we struggle with this. We will struggle with this from, the t from now to the time that we meet Jesus. And I provide just three quick points to help everyone to take steps toward being all in. One, join a small group. Be in one of our A-teams. Be in a group with people studying God's word and praying for one another, helping each other to be all in. We can't do it on our own. Number two, if you're a follower of Jesus and this is your church, join a ministry, volunteer in one of our areas of service. It's part of being all in. It's taking a step of faith. And number three, pray. Pray, and this is a hard prayer because we know that what the answer is. Pray that God will bring defining moments into your life that would break you free of the things that hold you back and it would transform you into a person who is all in. Dangerous prayer. Beautiful prayer. Are you all in? And ask everyone just to bow your heads and close your eyes where you are.
and for you to do some business with the Lord. I'm going to ask for you just to respond quietly in the privacy of your own heart. Evaluate your heart. What are you all in? What are you holding back? What's holding you back? If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've understood this morning that you've never made that commitment, will you embrace Christ as, as your Lord, as your Savior, your champion this morning? Just come cleanly before Him and ask for forgiveness. Commit to live for Him. If you're a follower of Jesus, I ask that you evaluate all these defining moments in your life and see how God has been at work in you to lead you to where you are today, strengthening your faith to get through the next challenge and helping you to shed worldly desires so that you could live fully for Him who is all in for you. Lord, Father, I thank you so much for this morning and this opportunity to open up Scripture, Lord, and just to take a 35,000-foot view and survey this story. And, Lord, to see how you work, that you are so personally involved in the lives of individuals, calling us to more, Lord, increasing our faith, asking us, Lord, inviting us, rather, to be a part of this wonderful story that you're writing, the story of grace. And I pray for conviction upon everyone in the room, Lord, that we would desire that. Lord, it is for our good, it's for your glory, it's for the good of others. But I think for the example of these three in the story and of others throughout history where they were willing to pay that price, Lord. Lord, may we be so bold, so strong in our faith that we would be able to, if needed, in, in a moment to take that same step, Lord. But more than that, I ask, not simply that, that we'd be willing to die for our faith in you, but that we would live it out at home with our spouse, with our children, Lord, at work, with coworkers, wherever we may be, Lord, may we be the light of Christ. Lord, I thank you for grace, and I thank you for the gift of the cross. I thank you for making salvation possible. I thank you for the gift of your Son and the mercy that we receive by grace, not by works, but simply, uh, Lord, by faith in, in Jesus and giving our lives over to him. That it's through that, Lord, we are delivered out of the furnace. We are forgiven of everything, Lord. Praise you. Praise you for your love. And Lord, like the three in the story, how it ends where they walked out of the furnace and their hair was not even singed. They did not even smell like fire afterwards, Lord. In the same way, you will protect us from everything, from sin and its consequences, Lord, by placing our faith in you. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, let us survey you, the cross. Let us survey our lives. May we be a people who are all in just like you're all in with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing to our Lord. <laughs>